So welcome back to another episode of Nature Chat. I know we've been doing these sort of sporadically, um, but this is the show after the show where some of the people who are playing Nature Check stick around and talk about things. Um, so today it's me, Cheryl, and also Peter, and one of our guest players from the first From the Annals of History game, Eric. Hello. Hi. Hey, Alright, so to recap what happened in the uh, From the Annals of History episode, um, so the player characters were a bunch of people on a Tenibrian naval vessel, vessel um, <laughs> that uh, was coming back from um, some Tenibrian military endeavors. Uh, on another continent, um, and the ship was, uh, prior to the start of the game, or the curtain rising, uh, the ship was caught in a terrible storm at sea, and sort of separated from the rest of the fleet, and so when action started, the characters were having to figure out how to repair the ship, and navigate it home, um, and then they realized that they might be running short on supplies because they were having trouble navigating home, and decided that they might want to make a pit stop at Arda to forage for some stuff when, oh no, a giant megalodon shark attacked them. <laughs> and uh, they were trying to fight the shark um, and the shark was eating their boat and ate one of their sailors. We were throwing sand at the shark, the shark and it was mildly irritated. Basically. <laughs> um, but then a bigger shark came along and saved them by attacking the first shark. It was do, 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 really... Do really uh, serendipitous. Um, so they have now limped their way into the um, uh, river mouth at the southeastern tip of Arda, which should sound familiar to everyone because <gasps> that's a landmark in the main campaign. What? Yeah. yeah, so next time, next time we need some uh, filler content that isn't the main storyline, we will pick up with hopefully these same characters <laughs> And another from the Annals of History story, and we'll see what happens to them now that they're at the mouth of this river on Arda. Wait, hopefully these same characters. What does that mean? Well, I mean, like, if one of you wasn't able to play for some reason. Oh, okay. Yeah. Next if one time. of you has already been discovered as a mummy in the main campaign, you know, or <laughs> giant shark. I was undead the whole time. Oh, no. Ah, uh, and I'm the only one who can turn undead. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> How does this work? I'm oh. hurting myself. So I know, uh, Peter, you were stressing out a lot during that game because there were a lot of rough rolls. Um, but yeah, how did you guys? Bad how did you guys feel about playing that module because it was very different than what we normally do? It was, it was a great module. Yeah, it was like we just couldn't roll at all. Like the hands down, out of all the D and D campaigns I've ever played, that that session had the worst rolls. <laughs> It was, yeah. I mean, like, like not, and not even that many critical failures, just a lot of, like, sad rolls. Mm -hmm. Like, just, like, a lot of, like, not good. Well, and then yeah. Joe rolled two natural 20s, but they were on, like, reflex saves to yeah. not fall over. It wasn't yeah. like they were on yeah. attacks. Yeah. That's my, one of, one of my players was in the chat, and he got to witness these dice that I use at that table continue to roll poorly <laughs> every time. <laughs> Uh, but they they have a joke that like it it sucks to have these these uh, these metal dice when I'm one of the players or one of the characters when I'm DM it's great though they love that they love it when I'm DM and they use these dice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, having your DM roll bad is is very. They, yeah, they love that. They they yeah. love it so much. That's that's why I have like literally I think ten d20s back here because I chronically uh, roll poorly. On non-digital dice, actually. So I was, yeah. um, I was a player on a different game that was live streamed on Twitch for a few months, and there was actually one session where one of the other players was so tired of me saying that I was an unlucky roller that he was asking for like all four of the players to record like the the raw dice roll before we said like our you know our results kind of thing, and he did some stats on it and proved that yes, indeed, I do roll below average. Um, so. <laughs> So I have a lot of D20s because I sort of switch between them um, when I'm a DM because otherwise nothing would ever happen. <laughs> See, I don't know if you can really statistically prove that, though. <laughs> I, I've definitely thought, like, there there are so many good roles on, you know, the 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 
D&D podcasts that have been going for years, you know, your critical roles, your adventure zones. You know, it'd be so great if somebody would go through and, like, actually compile, like, all their different roles. And, you know, it's like, oh, man, you know, it's like, oh, Percy always rolls, you know, oh so God. good. You know, like, it is, that, it, is that it was the statistically specific die, unlikely? Though. It was the golden snitch yeah. because, you know, like, like, <laughs> like Taliesin used the golden snitch die while he was playing Percy and he rolled 20s all the time. And then he gave it to mm-hmm. Matt for the new campaign and now Matt rolls 20s on it. So well, I think that yeah. die is just not weighted correctly. <laughs> there's, there's a website in a group that's called Crit Roll Stats uh-huh. that does stats on all of the roles yep. from Critical Roll. Yep. Oh, my God. And uh, I think some of the sponsorships I, from the first season, at least, were like, here's how many de- like 20s were rolled, here's how many 1s were rolled, here's the first 20 that was rolled, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, so there oh, are there are so some much. stats nerds out there who are doing that. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's I, I I love that I love that there's somebody out there that does that. That's I love that there's somebody who has not enough things to do. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also just like, hey, this would be this would be a easy code to write. I could mm-hmm. I could do this. Mm-hmm. I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's how you felt about the rolls. So, how did you feel about the shark? That was well, the shark. That was a monster. Oh uh, yeah. 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 I was gonna ask I was gonna ask Eric about this. Like, so do you have a lot of experience with being attacked by megalodons? Is this a thing that happens in your in your uh, everyday just life? One time, but I don't really want to talk about it. So Oh, okay. Um I'm sorry, I didn't mean to it's touch kinda it's bringing so up some, some memories. I'm gonna have to roll a will save to, to oh, boy, make it through the rest man. of the day. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't uh, I I I've briefly run, uh, and I am running my own D and D session right now. But I haven't done a lot of uh, like uh, creatures um, mm. who are the who are the enemies um, in my sessions. They're mostly I, I there's there's an element that where I just like having somebody where it's just like this guy's objectively bad. <laughs> and you should kill them. Yeah. Uh, and I'm running into issues because I like to have morally gray mm-hmm. enemies mm-hmm. in my session. Mm-hmm. And I'm running into a problem where, <laughs> like, somebody who I'm bringing in to try to be helpful, for example, all my uh, my PCs are going to be like, "No, fuck you, get out of here. I don't, want... <laughs> I don't trust you." you know, Your backstory is too complex. <laughs> and I'm like, "No, what have I done?" <laughs> um, I I do have a couple of uh, of um, things like uh, the the boulette is actually one mm-hmm. uh, thing that I have planned. Nice. Coming up, if my character can, can you this. can you can you tell our, our listeners what a boulette is? Um, I can try to remember. I think the boulette is like a giant. It's a, like a burrowing quadruped beast that eats large creatures. <laughs> it's like um, it's like a if a rhinoceros and a land shark had a and very an happy baby. Like all, yeah. yeah. So it's got it's got tremor sense, which is fun because so it like burrows under the ground, but tremor sense means that it can like feel things vibrating the ground so it can like sense you walking and just like yeah. pop up out from under you and eat you and they're heavily armored mm-hmm. and they're yeah they're they're very tough yeah um they're but that's the cool thing though. is that you know these are all creatures and like mm-hmm. creatures don't have an alignment um they it, do most, in three five in three well they're i think they're neutral in three five right it really depends on the creature some of sure. them are lawful or chaotic evil some of them are neutral some of them are yeah. good I guess I'm, I mean, my cat is definitely chaotic. People are what I'm saying, but then there's like monsters <laughs> and stuff like that. But yeah, I haven't I haven't done a lot of uh, water-based adventures uh, in my stuff. Um, my friend who's running the other campaign, we're doing a pirate adventure, so there's a lot more water-based stuff there. Um, but we we haven't gotten too far. That, that tracks. Yeah, pirates and water. That yeah. I'm in my limited experience with pirates. There could they, be land pirates it. though. They they could be. So, so Eric, is it safe to say that you're familiar with Dungeons and Dragons? I am a little familiar with Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm more familiar with Fifth Edition. Uh, I, I will put that out there now. Um, I I started playing about uh, maybe two years ago with the my current group, and um, I was interested in, in DMing, and I I really love world building um, because this is it's a really fascinating way to. Um, it's a little bit like a PhD, um, <laughs> in, a, in a kind of strange way. So uh, let me let me let me give you an example. Um, in the the world that my friend and I built, um, we had a I, I had had a thought 
that there's only a finite number of elf souls that exist in this world. So there's only 10,000 of them or something like that, right? Okay. And so we took that idea and then we just followed it to the like most extreme area that we could. We just kept following this thread of logic and we said, all right, if there's only a finite number of elf souls, what happens if you have a half-elf? Does it take up half an elf soul? Does it not? Does it take a human soul? What we ended up deciding on is that a half-elf still consumes a full elf soul. All right, what does that mean? That means that um, the only way for a half-elf to be born with an elf soul is if there's an elf soul already present. There has to be an, a soul available for that new child to be born. Okay. And if there's elven blood in human bloodlines, humans breed more rapidly than elves. So even if there is a very thin amount of elven blood in humans, humans breed so rapidly that over time, more half-elves are going to be born than full-blooded elves. Okay. What does that mean? Yeah. That means that all the elven kingdoms are now like running out of souls to repopulate their own kingdoms. All right, what does that mean? That means that now there's a faction of elves who go out and kidnap and human traffic half-elves or half-elf traffic half-elves to kill them and steal their souls and make full elf... You know, and just like you just follow a single thread as far as you mm -hmm. can go. And that's the element of world-building that I love. Um, mm -hmm. Is it's, it just... And you have to... Sometimes you have to do research and you have to see, like, what did people do in this time or how did these things work? Um, and it's just... It's a really interesting, like, anachronistic experience. Um, I like that you did that in, like... Uh, I guess one direction is is how I'm gonna say it because you were like, oh well, so like, what if we set this condition? What would the effects of that condition mm -hmm. be? Um, for the Arda campaign, I did it in the opposite direction because I set I want this to the, be the effect, right? That there's this yeah. continent that you guys need to explore because nobody's explored it yet, right? Yeah. And now, so how did then that I happen? exactly I had to trace it back and figure out what the conditions were. Yeah, um, and I've probably done a little bit of both, yeah. but that was that's just one example of like if I was a researcher like moving forward, mm -hmm. like that's kind of the way it works out, but. Um, I did actually, I, I played, I, I got 3.5 nice. edition back in high school, like my senior year of high school. Uh, I, had, I had a friend who invited me over and we played like one game and I thought it was interesting. And I was like, yeah, I want to I, I wanna do that. So I think my brother got me um, a, like a kit for my birthday or something like that. Um, but then I never, one of the things about D&D is you need to find a group who has the same idea of what they want out of a game that you do. And the problem that I ran into when I was 18 years old as a DM is that my me and my friends had different ideas of what we wanted to get out of a session and also I was kind of I was not a great DM, so I would get frustrated when people were not doing the thing that I wanted to. Um, Part of that was also my fault because I allowed my friends to be centaurs and half dragons and flying things and all sorts <laughs> of stuff. And I had a friend who was, I was trying to be like, all right, you're trying to explore the dungeon. And she's like, no, I fly around and I dust all the corners of the room because it's dusty. And I was like, no, I want to have a hardcore D&D &D campaign. <laughs> and so there's just like, there was a mix there. Um, Everybody's first time DMing is really rough. It was very, yeah, it, it happened that one time and then it never happened yeah. again. <laughs> but I, I held like on to the forks. It, it, um, I feel like most of us have probably... Uh, when we were angsty teens, we wrote angsty teen poetry or angsty teen fiction, right? And the first time, never. Yeah. No, well, I would, <laughs> right? I would never, never do that. Purse so that she would read it later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if, yeah, and if you were foolish enough to share it with someone else, right? Like it's, it's really, it hurts a lot because you like hand someone your baby and they read it and they like rip it apart and you're like, oh, but I wrote that and I care about it, right? But like when you're a DM, it's so much worse because you're like, here I wrote this thing and then your players are like, but I want to enlarge the guy who fell in the water so that the shark can play him and you're like what i never thought of that what are you doing yeah, mm -hmm. and like you have to like scramble yeah. so yeah like I, I made the same mistake as a first time dm where i was like, 
oh goodness um i was <laughs> trying to like hardcore like force my players to do what yeah. i thought you know so that it would fit my mm -hmm. narrative and it was yeah. like mm -hmm. no um so now i've sort of taken it to the other extreme and i like to build very sandboxy things which is yeah. a lot of hard work um but it's more fun in the long run because it means everybody is constantly on their toes including yeah. you um <laughs> although there's also there's there's some give and take with all of that uh the <laughs> session i'm running right now uh this like my players are exploring this island it's very sandboxy but one of the pieces of, like i reach out to my players a lot and i i ask them like what do you like what do you not like and i will help like tailor this experience for you because we are we're all player like the dm is another player they just mm -hmm. have different tools mm -hmm. um so i have certain things that i want to do but i also want to make sure my players have the experience that they want to get and a piece of feedback I got is like this: the game that we're running right now. I love the amount of freedom I have, but it's so sandboxy that we can't figure out what we're supposed to do. When there's no direction, yeah. 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 Um, and so, like you know, moving forward, I'm going to have a little bit more like direct. You know, I'm not going to be like this is the one thing you need to do, but I might be like, here's three quest lines you could follow. Yeah, adventure hooks, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. 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 I like that you said that the the DM is a player too, just with different <laughs> tools. Um Peter, if you remember like the session that we did all together, like to set up our characters for the Artie mm -hmm. campaign before we actually went live. And I told you guys, um, I said D and D is a story that you tell with your friends, right? So like we don't get to be the angsty teen author sitting alone in your room with a notebook, right? Like we we have to all make the story together, which means that yeah, I sort of give up control and give up that like oh I'm hurt if you don't do it exactly the way I yeah. want I'm excited because you've contributed something so yeah. D&D <laughs> is a fantastic yes and experience oh, if you've ever done improv improv mm -hmm. yeah so like one of the things that you, you know even I've, I've done a little bit of DMing so I'm more experienced in it now but I still have a tendency when my players like if they have a backstory element or something like that and they want to say here's the thing that I said my gut instinct is to be like no that doesn't fit into my world <laughs> but I have to like tune that out mm -hmm. and like take a step back and be like, okay, here's something I didn't know about my world. What can I do with that? Mm -hmm. And then try and turn it into a yes and and say like, okay, here's a, you know here's the thing that exists. I sure. think actually it would work really well this way. And then we we collaborate. Like each of my players' characters is a collaboration between themselves and me, and I've helped mm -hmm. them. Absolutely. You know, they come up with an idea, and then I say, that sounds really cool. How does this sound on top of it? Like, here's this element of the world that I've built or something like that. Uh, and then together we go back and forth, and we build, some, we build a character together mm -hmm. that fits in with everything that's there and ultimately is, is more exciting to the players. Absolutely. Um, um, a great example of that in the Arctic campaign. Um, <laughs> Lucanus is the one who shaped the fate of the elves, right? The fact that elves are almost extinct on um, this on this planet um, mm -hmm. was because of things that he and I developed together. That that Peter, or sorry, that, not Peter, that Joe and I developed together. Yeah. He was Peter, Peter doesn't know about this at all. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah the, the fact that elves are almost entirely extinct is is something that like he developed, or like half the people in New Seychester are people that Nancy had ideas for and was like, so I'm friends with this person and I have this relationship with this person. And I was like, great, yeah, let's do it. Because it means yeah. that I don't have to do as much world building if you're like telling me what the people are. And yeah. that's what I love about world building is that it's so co like cooperative and collaborative. Mm -hmm. And like religion is one of those things that always is fantastic. I have a player mm -hmm. in my campaign who is a cleric. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, let's take this opportunity to actually to like flesh out what this means. And he had an idea for a church, and I said, that sounds really cool. What if this one church and everything that you had here was part of a larger organization of everything else, and together as a cabal, your goal was to do this, to prevent planar influences into the prime material plane or something like that. And like... Every time we've gone back and forth, he said, like, yes, that sounds awesome. Like, that's really, and he's really excited about it. It's kind of the same thing that I did with uh, Radiant Marcus Brown. Um, here in this campaign is, um, I mean, you, you, gave me, you gave me a character who was a cleric of Paylor, um, but you didn't have a real, like, a, an established narrative of who Paylor is. You had some ideas of here's what the nation is like. Mm -hmm. And so what I tried to do was I 
Because at, at least the deities that you have are based off of Greyhawk. Yeah. Um, they're based off of just the traditional 3.5 edition. Mm-hmm. I read into that. Um, I pulled a whole bunch of notes of like, what do people normally do? What are the things that people normally say? What are the things that they'll, uh, you know? I also I have a list of like other saints, like other yep. big clerics. <laughs> and one of the things, one of the guys who was there, I didn't get a chance to talk about it on the session, but there's a there's a cleric named uh, Saint Yalnir the Gentle, who is a half orc. Mm. That means something mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. your world. Where if the Tynivarians see the orcs as like savages or something like that, the fact that there's a half orc who is elevated up in Paylor's eyes means that even the uncivilized savages of these other nations can find redemption inside of Paylor's church. And that has a very specific meaning inside of the world. Mm-hmm. So I tried to build a lot of that into what you already had and then build on top of it. Yeah. And it's and it's even interesting to think about like oh you've got that list of characters but like you know you could you could take um sorry Yalnir the gentle is that right? Yeah. yeah. So you could take him as as that sort of story but another way to take it which you know maybe the Tenebrian royal house would see this that like you would be very um like apologist about it where you like find some sort of way of twisting the story to make it sound like really exceptional in some other way. Um, because yeah, maybe the half orc thing doesn't fit with the narrative very well. And so, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about like, yeah, how do you contribute to the story? Because of course I'm not going to come up with six versions of every religion in yeah. the world on the off chance that we encounter them in the game. Like, no, yeah. <laughs> we just sort of come up with them as we get to them. Yeah. And that was one of the things that we talked about because Dinebria is based on like <clears throat> colonial England, mm-hmm. which had the, the Church of England there. Um, one of the things I had chatted with you about is I said, like, you you gave me these these points in swim or in climb or something yeah. like that, but I'm wearing armor, so I'm going to sink anyway. <laughs> and just, Can I take these points and move them somewhere else? Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, that's fine. Uh, and I was originally thinking maybe I'll put them into a language and I'll learn celestial, for example. Mm-hmm. And then I thought about, like, what is the real-world analog of what you're doing? And I said, all right, it's the Church of England. The Church of England rejected Latin as mm-hmm. the language of the church, and they instated English. Mm-hmm. So if there's a schism in the Church of Pelor, sort of mirroring the same thing, it wouldn't make sense for me as a Tenebrian cleric of Pelor to have learned celestial, which I see as, like, the Latin of this yeah. world. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I could have done that, but... It makes more sense from a from a uh, like world building perspective to have said that we've rejected this language that's hard to learn and like only super like highly educated people can learn it and instead they've built a church on common mm-hmm. or tenebrian, mm-hmm. um, which is also like another thing that I do in my in my campaign. I don't have a common language. Ah, I I have human. Okay, I I have the human language. And then, like, a secondary common language is actually the Gnomish language. So depending on what continent you're on, one of those two languages will be the common language. But there's no, like, I don't know. It's another one of those, like, almost Tolkien kind of things that, like, carries over or, like, the the standard fantasy of, like, human is the default. Human is the most Mm -hmm. important Mm -hmm. race or ancestry or... um, uh, whatever term you want to use for that. Yeah. Um, and I was like, No, I think I think default is good. I think because it it, it it parallels well with yeah. you know like uh, in a lot of our literature culture, it, like a whiteness being the default, right? And everybody else being like, Oh, well, they're like this, but slightly different, you know, in this particular way. And so I think, yeah, in a lot of fantasy, you see that as humans are you know humans are the standard, and then. We need, like say like Star Trek. You're like, oh, the Klingons are like humans, but they're more angry. You know, yeah. <laughs> the Frangi, the Frangi are like uh, humans, but they're prettier. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah you just have this Everything, kind of like it, core. human is the is the pin. Which mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense because we are humans when we're doing that. But right. there's That's things true. that you can introduce in a world that mm-hmm. suggest that human is not necessarily the default. Yeah. I th- I, but I, but it takes work, right? I think as yeah. a DM, you know, like creating a world like that, like it's, you know, and I think we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but like, you know, that the it's very easy to fall into the the kind of 
um, fantasy trope of like medieval Europe and and so like spreading yeah. out and, and exploring you know trying to create or you know adapt you know cultural elements yeah. from real life you know into into a campaign and, and role build that way it can be yeah. um, it's there are a lot of challenging challenges and pitfalls in yeah. there. Well, and that's so. I, I wanted to ask, so to go back to kind of what you were talking about earlier about, you know, like how, like, it's so cool, like your example of like, if we take this axiom of like, oh, there are so many elf souls, like, I, I love that idea of, of kind of saying, if this, then what happens? And I think, you know, that that's something that I think um, a lot of scientists will kind of relate to, like, oh, like, in, in all these fantasy worlds, there's so many things like this where it's like, if you drill down into it, it's like, you know, there there aren't enough farmers in this world to support the, you know, the, the standing army that they're claiming that they have. Or, yeah. you know, the, 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 there's no way that the local, you know, herbivory, you know, population can support, you know, the amount of caloric intake that a dragon is going to, you know, need. You know, there are, there are all these things that you kind of drill down into that. Do you find that, I don't know who you play with. Are the people you play with other scientists? Do they like when they're collaboratively world building with you? Do they play along with that game? Like, is that is that the kind of thing that they're into? Um, or... Some things, yes. So one of my players is a um, in fifth edition. There is a uh, what is it? She's a she's a gunslinger, which is, which comes yeah. from Critical Role, yeah. uh, but it's a fighter backdrop. Um, all, all the people that I play with are. Uh, let's see, three of them are, are biomedical engineers, and then uh, one of them is a, a graphic artist um, who's married to one of the other engineers. So a lot of nerds in lots of different ways. Peter, what do you ask? <laughs> <laughs> do, people, do people like playing uh, yeah, yeah, a, a science-heavy, um, concept-heavy game with you? So my, my gunslinger character, uh, she's very engineering-focused. And so she wanted to do a character where she designs and builds and creates new things that are not in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been working with her on um, on coming up with a crafting system to work for that. So one of the things that she wanted to do was, for example, um, for her rifle, she wanted to have like a little scope light on the end. That just that creates a light. She's a human, so she mm-hmm. she doesn't have dark vision, mm-hmm. um, and she's not a caster, so she doesn't have a way to, to do that. And so she said, "What would it take for me to do to to create like a little thing that just has a light, like a light cantrip on the end of it?" Mm-hmm. And I thought about it for a little bit, and I said, "Okay, like the creating the actual housing is going to be really easy. You can just do that with scrap metal. The harder part is going to be getting a permanent light cantrip onto something." And so it'll take a little bit of time for you to build a thing, but you will have to talk to somebody, like the wizard in the party, mm-hmm. conveniently enough. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to him. You will have to do some research, like X number of hours of research or X number of successful checks of research on how to do a permanent light cantrip. You'll have to spend some money to do it. You'll have to find out. You know, what's going to end up happening is something like, all right, you need, like, the, the material components to cast the light cantrip are either glowing mushroom, like, yeah, glowing fungus or firefly thoraxes. So you're going to need, like, a bucket of butterfly of uh, firefly butts <laughs> to be able to create a p- permanent version of this. Mm-hmm. And you need something to affix that on, and that'll probably be a pearl of a certain size because a pearl has a specific mm-hmm. magical blah, blah, blah. A bucket of firefly butts. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, just coming up with something like that of like, yeah. should, and that's that's one of the things I really like about fifth edition in particular is that mm-hmm. because the rule set is very simple, it's really easy for me to come up with stuff that is outside of my expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Cheryl, you were talking about like you weren't expecting me to use enlarged person on somebody that in the water, great. yeah, <laughs> um, which is great. You know, it's it. I, I love doing stuff that's a little bit outside of the, the expectation like that, but mm-hmm. uh, it's a little bit easier to balance some of that stuff or make a ruling about how something will work when there are fewer rules in place. Mm-hmm. And so the simplicity with which 5th edition has done that, I really appreciate for yeah. that purpose. Yeah. But I also understand that there are people who uh, prefer Pathfinder or 3.5 who like a little bit more rigor in the rules that are there, so it's less of the DM just coming up with something random on the spot. Yeah. And more of a calculated exactly. um, 
strategic. Yeah, it's thing. not it's not about rigor as in like, oh, you're not allowed to be creative. But like I said, I, I constantly use uh, the word realistic in quotes, but I feel like just yeah. having advantage or disadvantage, like it makes it really easy for you to just like very quickly make decisions. Um, whereas like as a 3-5 DM, I have to like know the rules really well so that I remember all of the numbers in my Do head. Do I give right? this but... person a plus one or a plus exactly. two or a plus but, five? But I think that, and... that, you know, it makes more sense to me because yeah. a lot of things in life are more nuanced than that, right? Like advantage or disadvantage mm -hmm. winds up being the, like setting up this black and white dichotomy. Whereas like having plus two or minus three or whatever allows for a little more like wiggle room. And, and, yeah. and yeah, also having those rules means that like like uh, DMs are allowed to make arbitrary decisions. That's part of telling the story. But I I try not to make arbitrary decisions because I don't want yeah. things to feel unfair. Um, yep. Because again, we're working together on this story. It's not my story for you to play through. So yeah, that's yeah. one of the reasons I tend to like those rules. I guess yeah. Yeah, and I think I think this. So this again, going back to something you said earlier, but you were talking about like when you were first starting out being a DM, and you you know you everybody's crappy and then they're uh, you know. DMing for the first time. But I think so much of that is like finding the group that fits with whatever play style you're playing, right? Because yeah. there are there are some groups where I have played like some of the absolute best D D sessions ever. It was like there was no combat and we were like haggling with a merchant or like doing something really stupid, you know, it's like we wanted to, you know, convince some NPC to do this. And then there are other games where it's like they're very combat focused, and it. I mean, and a lot of that is the party, what they want to do, and and the, the DM. And like, I, I think all all of those are are good and valid playstyles. And so much of that is finding like the people that work for you. And you know, obviously, there's a lot of gray area of like yeah. you know, this group that is traditionally like a very rule following group. Maybe you have a session where you're all just like. Cutting loose and you do something goofy and um, I, I I think you know it, so much of it is is kind of lucking into good personalities that get along and mesh well and can can yeah. really you know carry something you know cool and new and different forward. Um, but I that's that's something I love about the games that that there is that kind of all that whole spectrum of, of gray area. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, and and so you've got your DMs, you've got your party. You've got your additions, or, or you know, your Pathfinder, you know, your your game that you're actually playing. All of those factors, you know, play into, you know, what's gonna just make the best play session, and you never know. It's too many factors yeah, to, to really it's, it's pick chemistry. the best one. You just gotta kind of throw throw it throw it at the wall and see what sticks. And yeah. we'll do twenty just... and see how your group is. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I, I really love the point you made about group dynamic, though. I'm I'm sort of fascinated by group dynamics because I've I've been a team building facilitator and stuff like that before. So yeah, mm -hmm. like how different groups of people work together is really fascinating to me. And I guess that was one of those things about Nature Check where it was like, oh well, we just sort of put together some people who responded to Joe's tweet, and I was like, yeah. how is this gonna work? And then it worked out really <laughs> well. And then tonight yeah. tonight was the first time that we had guest players, and I was like. Well, I like Eric and Emily. Like they're friends with me, and I know that they're nerds and they like D and D. But like, are they actually going to jive with like Joe and? No, like, I, I think gonna... Eric. Eric sucks a lot. I don't like him at all. <laughs> Not I also think that Eric sucks a lot. Oh. So we have yeah. a lot of but but it's a real concern especially because yeah. our goal is to have a lot of guest players on nature check right it's always like okay well this person can be really cool individually or in certain groups but like how are we all gonna work together yeah. and that's like it's scary and exciting um, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah for sure uh one of the things that i did before i started running my session was i i sent out a uh poll to my players and I asked them a whole bunch of questions. I asked them things like, do you want high fantasy or dark fantasy? Do you want like gritty realism or do you want like hand wavy stuff? Do you want magic to be ubiquitous or super rare? Uh, are you looking for strategic combat or just hack and slash? So I asked all of my players like all of these different things and the feedback that I got from it gave me a really good indicator of like, what is someone looking for out of the game? And it's also, I mean, also, that is not going to be constant. Like, if mm -hmm. I finish this campaign and we do another campaign later, 
they might give me totally different, like they might have gotten their fill of hack and slash and now they want something more strategic. Or they sure. might have gotten, they might be tired of the low magic fantasy that I've run mm -hmm. and they want to do something more like Eberron where magic is everywhere. Um, you know, and it's given me an idea and obviously like I'm not able to, to touch on everything that everybody wanted, but um, one of the most important pieces of feedback that I got was um, I'm not sure if you are if you're familiar with the concept of lines and veils. Um, so lines and veils is a um, I, the word coming to mind is is like security, but that's not the right word. It's like a um, Cheryl, help me out. What's the word I'm looking for? A concept, a framework, um, uh, a uh, let me just explain it, and then you'll maybe you'll be able to come up with it. We just uh, we should, what we should do is we just just pause, and then we'll just edit in the word that you meant to say yeah. later, right? <laughs> All right. So editing, Cheryl. I'm gonna move my mouth. It's a type of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, we're for the record, we don't edit shit in, so you no. just don't that. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Okay. So, but it was really adorable seeing I mean, you try. Okay, it's not like I couldn't, but I'm not going to because it was funny. Yeah. It was good. All right. <laughs> line, so lines and veils. A line is something where in session somebody might be uncomfortable and they would just prefer to... Uh, or Sorry, let me back up. A veil is where somebody might be uncomfortable and they're not uncomfortable with the topic being in the game, but they don't want to dwell on it. Mm -hmm. So it's okay for a common example of this is torture uh, in D and D. So mm -hmm. somebody might not want to do a play-by-play -play of a torture scene. Mm -hmm. They might be okay with it being in the game, but they would prefer you to just kind of draw a veil over it and then move on. It's mm -hmm. like the fade to black cutscene in exactly. like a, a romance novel that isn't super torrid, or like a movie that is trying yeah. not to be rated R. Yeah. Sure, the pantic pantic exactly. fire yeah. fireplace. Whereas a line is something where under no circumstances is somebody interested in having this concept in the game. So, mm -hmm. um, for example, a really common one is um, like sexual assault. Like mm -hmm. there are people who are not interested at all in dealing anything with that topic, and that is totally understandable. Mm -hmm. um, and what I wanted to do was to ask my players, like what are the lines that you have? Mm -hmm. What do you absolutely not want at all in the game? And then what are the veils that you have? What are the concepts that are okay, but you just don't want to deal with them? You just don't, you don't want to, to do a play-by-play -play, uh, for whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and it gave me a really good... It, it's a really good uh, safety mechanism uh, mm -hmm. to figure out beforehand what are the things that we should... Uh, watch out for. And there's a lot of these safety mechanisms. Uh, some other examples for for D and D that I've seen are think uh, there's one called the X card, which is there you have a card with an X on it just on the table. And if somebody's uncomfortable with whatever's going on, they tap the card, the DM knows, and then they just wrap it up and move on. Nobody talks about it. Um, the the flip side of that is that there's a, there's another concept called uh, it's just the O card, like a circle. And if somebody is like really into like whatever's going on, even if it's kind of difficult, they might mm -hmm. tap the O card and say like, "This is tough, but like I'm good." Yeah. Sometimes the best storytelling happens when we're challenging ourselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know we had this conversation both with the colonialism discussion in our first nature check episode, and then in the um, the sex work conversation during our second nature chat. This idea mm -hmm. that well, like. The wonderful and terrible thing about D&D is mm. that, like, you can really incorporate almost anything. And so, yes, this game can be a way for us to explore a lot of real-world issues. Mm. But, like, yeah, how we how we do that is really important. Yeah. Not just that we're like, oh, we're going to talk about this thing. But, like, the, the how, the method mm -hmm. is what yeah. really becomes very important. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this kind of brings up what we had talked about a little bit before jumping on the show here of the the, the rule that I have in my game for like uh, for incorporating elements from another culture, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, the the rule I have at my table is that if you want to in, uh, sort of appropriate something uh, from another culture, uh, like a, a, a um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like a marginalized culture. So, for example, something like uh, like a Native American headdress or something mm -hmm. like that. 
because it's a fantasy game, like it's understandable that people will want to incorporate some of these elements because they um, they like the idea behind them or something like that. The rule that I have at my table is um, it is acceptable for you to use those for your character, but you have to do the research and fully understand what it is that you are um, that you are incorporating, and then whatever uh, importance it has in the real world, you need to have some similar importance for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and and I leave that up to my players of like, do you feel that you have a a good enough understanding of of what that means. So if we're talking about um, LGBT char- issues or characters or uh, trans characters or something like that, that is not something that for me I feel like I would have enough right. understanding to be able to um, implement respectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, and maybe that's that's another issue that they're just not represented at all. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know how to. Um, to incorporate that in a way that is uh, fully truthful and respectful of all of the issues that mm-hmm. someone would go through. And then we talked about that before. That the the, the total, totally opposite side of that is that I build in a camp, I, I build a world entirely around things that I know mm-hmm. and that I'm comfortable with, which is. A very very small subset of the amount of things that are out there, and then whatever I've built has just ended up being homogenous anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are these two very different extremes um, mm-hmm. to like to to world building in general, and really the only way to get around that is to learn mm-hmm. and to read and to listen as it's, much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. It's an enormous philosophical discussion that I don't think anybody has a right answer to. But yeah. I guess the way I come at D&D, because uh, I've said this before, I was a huge theater nerd when I was younger, right? And and I was definitely typecast to be a certain kind of character for a lot of my high school theater career, where mm-hmm. the character was very much like me, right? And then mm-hmm. my senior year, I was cast to be this character which is un- entirely unlike myself and I spent the entire semester trying to figure out how to play her because I was just like this is not I don't I don't have anything in common with her mm-hmm. and it it was a lot of thinking and I didn't do hard research because she I mean she was still like me it, it was just her personality was entirely separate mm-hmm. from mine but yeah it mm-hmm. was a lot of like soul searching and a real amazing ex- exercise in empathy and so yeah. I sort of think about D&D the same way, right? Like, we have the opportunity, whether or not you choose to do it is up to you, but, like, you have the opportunity to play someone who is entirely separate from you or to experience things that you have not experienced in your own life. And I like the idea of, of incorporating so much research, like Eric mm-hmm. said, because, yeah, you can't just be like, oh, well, we're going to talk about this now. Right. I don't know anything about it, but I'm going to, like, pretend, because that only leads to disaster. Right. Um, but I do... I do think that it's important to use this vehicle to talk about issues that and amplify voices and things like that. Um, I think uh, Deb Morrison did an excellent job mm-hmm. of talking about power and using power responsibly. Um, so she was the keynote speaker at Comsecon Chicago recently that we were both at, and um, yeah, she talked about scientists and science communicators using their power to amplify the voices of other people and also mm-hmm. to speak for organisms that don't have voices of their own, and that really um, touched me. And that's something yeah. that I'd already been trying to do with this game and with my other science communication projects, but like it was very impactful. And I'm, I'm thinking about that more as we go forward in this campaign. Like, how do we use our power and our privilege and our position um, right. to amplify those stories in a respectful way? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's that's hard. I mean, like all of us are are cis white people, you know, and it's it's hard. I, I think it's almost impossible for us to to emulate or, or, you know, kind of pretend to speak for anybody else. But, but yeah, anything that we can do to, to amplify somebody else's voice. Um, yeah, is is 
mean, and that I think that's that's the real point, right? You just said yeah. you can't you can't pretend to speak for anyone else, and that was yeah. that was Deb's point, which yeah. was incredibly yeah. strong. She said other people have their own voices. You don't mm -hmm. ever need to speak for other yeah. people. We we need to speak for. Right. I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees, right? We need to right. speak for other organisms that don't have their own voices, but all other people do have their own voices. It's right. just about helping yeah. them be louder. Right. Yeah. But as DMs, you are called upon to speak for many other people uh so you know so that is something that you will you have to come across right as like you you do have to speak for people and if you want to bring people you know npcs but still you know people care you know personalities and characters and cultures and things like that into your campaign you are going to have to step into that role of speaking for other people that's as simple as every time i play a character who's male though right like mm -hmm. you know i i can drop my voice and make different facial expressions but like i don't know what it's like to be a dude um, <laughs> and and being a dude is not a homogenous experience <laughs> just like being a woman is not a homogenous experience so like yeah no i, I Every character I run in a D&D &D campaign, unless it was literally a character named Cheryl who looked and acted and felt about things exactly the way yeah. I do, is going mm -hmm. to be, yeah, it's going to be someone else. And that's, yeah, it's the fun and the scary challenge. Mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the interesting things, one, the, the question that I asked Deb during this, this keynote that I want to bring up here is the idea of intersectionality, which is... Mm -hmm. Um, so, for example, Cheryl, you're just talking about like yeah, I don't know what it's like to be a dude, but you have an idea of what it's like to be white. So there's an element of being white that, if you were to play as a white man, there's an element that transfers and there's an element that doesn't. But that doesn't like playing as a white man and playing as a black man, for example. Those are going to be like two very different things. And so, I. Um, I follow a lot of activists of various types on Twitter, um, which is it's one of the one of the best things that I found about Twitter is uh, just the amount of of different voices that I can expose myself to and fill my timeline with. Um, and because I I happen to work in uh, the medical field, so I I find a lot of um, I, I find I am more. Um, uh, geared towards uh, disability activism than I think a lot of other people are. I feel like uh, disability is one of those things that tends to not be considered. Um, a lot of people consider um, gender and they consider sexual orientation and race, mm -hmm. but then ableism is not one of those things there. But um, I don't know if either of you two watch Queer Eye. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I don't, but I saw Twitter explode about one particular episode, uh, and it was an episode uh, about a black man who has, he runs a nonprofit called Disabled But Not Really. Mm -hmm. um, so if I remember correctly, I believe this individual uses a wheelchair, um, mm -hmm. and he runs a, he runs a nonprofit um, called Disabled But Not Really, which provides uh, sort of disability services or, or uh, uh, fitness services for people in the black community who are also disabled. Um, when this episode came out, disability Twitter was not happy mm -hmm. with this episode because the idea of disabled but not really to them is hiding the fact that disability is a thing and mm -hmm. downplaying the importance of disability. Mm -hmm. And so for several, um, maybe one or two weeks, there was a lot of complaints about this episode and the way that things were framed and the way that um, it seemed like the episode was trying to downplay uh, the importance of identifying as a disabled person. Mm. Um, but there was a, um, a black disabled woman um, Imani, I don't remember her last name. Uh, I can look it up and give it to you. But um, she wrote an article from her perspective as a black disabled woman of how the episode was actually really great because, uh, and, and it brought a lot of perspective of not only the disability community, but the black disability community and bringing the elements of, uh, for example, uh, it's more difficult um, 
in, in, in the black community to bring up a disability than it is in the white community. There's a privilege between those two. Um, so what this gentleman in the episode was doing by creating this nonprofit, Disabled But Not Really, and focusing on black disabled people was that he was focusing on a community that was underserved and trying to get them the help that they needed regardless of what normal disability Twitter might have said about identifying as a disabled person or not. So it was a really interesting, and, and then after she wrote this article, that article spread and like most of disability Twitter was like, I didn't realize that, thank you for bringing that up. So there's this intersectionality in this specific instance between someone who is disabled and someone who is black. Each person has their own individual experiences, but then somebody who is both black and disabled has experiences that is not necessary. it's not just a sum of those two things, it is something completely different. Um, and so it, it's it's really interesting to to see that, and it's kind of it, it's opened my eyes to how important it is to have those different intersections um, visible and out there. Um, so. No, that's yeah, that's an incredibly valuable point, and. Oh, the, I feel like we get into such deep discussions in <laughs> these games and in these chats, and the, of course, like like we say, well, oh, none of us have the answers, and we're certainly yes. not going to solve these problems in a 45-minute conversation. Um, but sure. I do really appreciate you guys talking about D&D &D and talking about sensitivity and talking about how we use this game to tell stories. Um, Thank you so much, everyone out there watching or listening to us. Um, don't forget that we will be back on Saturday, September 14th with another regular uh, Nature Check game. Um, do you guys have any final thoughts you'd like to share? I just looked up the uh, the person I was talking ah. about. Her name is um, Imani Barberin. Um, she goes by Crutches and Spice on Twitter. Nice. Um, nice. and her website, so definitely look her up. She's writing a lot of really incredible stuff, and she also has a Patreon if you want to consider uh, supporting the work that she does as well. Very cool. Fabulous. Thank, thank you so much, Eric. I just wanted to say, like, that that was that was fabulous. You've been great tonight, um, and I look forward to uh, the next time you're on, because I really want to hear more about your research, and, and I'm very excited to hear um, all the, the, the cool details about that. So, <laughs> yeah, everybody, everybody listening should tune back in next time. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. I hope they are cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, well, yeah, thank you both. Um, thank you so much, Eric, for being a guest player and coming on Nature Chat with us. Um, of course. We will see everybody next time. Bye. All right.